Bibles now, if you would, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And this evening, as we look into God's Word, we're studying this magnificent vision of heaven that was given to the Apostle John. The 21st and the 22nd chapters of Revelation are the story of heaven. And this is a description of the place that God has promised to his people. This is the country, the city that Abraham looked for with foundations whose builder and maker is God. There's a passage in Hebrews that I really like. It's one that we actually read in our congregational reading this morning. This is in Hebrews chapter 13. It says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, the author of Hebrews there is speaking, of course, of the death of Christ. He sanctified us. He washed us in his own blood when he was taken outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and nailed to a cross. And the writer says, let us go to him. Let us go outside the camp, outside of the city, And the reason that he says this is because Jerusalem below is not the home of the Christian. We have no continuing city here, but we do have a continuing city. And we seek for that which is to come. And that which is to come is the new Jerusalem. That's the city of God that's in heaven. And because God has promised us that home in heaven, then we praise him and we give thanks to his name. Now here in this 21st chapter, we have a description of heaven. And this is described in the only terms that we can understand. Uh, It's related to us with a mortal man trying to state it as accurately as he can do. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, but our minds are incapable, and John was incapable of telling us the fullness of what heaven will be like. And so the description that we have here is not less than what heaven will be but neither is it close to all that heaven will be. Now, in the last message, we read verses 9 through 27 of this chapter, but I'm not going to read all of that again. We'll just refer to the verses as we go through the message. But I want to read verse 9 down through uh, verse 11, Revelation chapter 21, verse number 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying... Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal." Now, this is the vision of the new Jerusalem. John says that it is a city that came down from God out of heaven. And this is the place that Abraham looked for, which tells us that heaven or this city of the new Jerusalem is not a new creation, but this has existed from all time. This is the home of God from eternity past. And John was allowed to see this city. An angel came to him in this revelation and gave him the the grand tour of that city. 
And it was one of the mighty angels of God that brought destruction on the evil city of Babylon when God judged the wicked empire of the Antichrist. Now, the last message that we had on this, it's been a month ago since we talked about this. We had a lot of things going on in between, so it's been a month since we last spoke on this subject. So I'm going to go over the first point of that first message just very briefly again. And we talked about in that message the angels of the city. Now, this particular angel that speaks to John is one of the vast numbers of angels that will be in heaven. Hebrews says that there are innumerable angels in heaven. It explains to us that they are ministering spirits that attend to the needs of God's people. Angels have numerous duties in heaven. And one of those we find described in verse number 12. It speaks there about angels that will be at each of these 12 gates that enter into the new Jerusalem. And so at each of these gates, there is an angel, which is a reminder to us that God's city is protected and that God's people are protected. And this angel is sent, or this particular one, for a contrast because he's the one that helped to destroy the earth's vilest city. That's Babylon as it exists during the tribulation time. He helped to destroy the world system that's always been against God. And the contrast here is that John sees the holy city, the one that eclipses in majesty the entire universe. And so this is a place that's filled with the glory of God through and through, There is no darkness there. There is no sin there. It's a place where no harm can ever come to God's people again. And so this city is the farthest end of the spectrum away from this horrible place, this wicked city that was called Babylon. And here is where God lives. God lives in this magnificent shining city. Verse number 10 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. And so John is taken to a place where he can get a wide-angle view of this city. And he describes that as a great mountain, a very high mountain. It's not a place that could ever be located upon the earth because the city is far too immense to get a vantage point of it from the earth. And so from some place above it, John is able to get a view of the outside of the city. Now, tonight we want to move on a little bit further into this study, and I'd like to notice, secondly, the appearance of the city. And this is just an overview as John gets into the uh, different particulars of the, of the city. He says in verse number 11, and this is very important for us to see, that the city had the glory of God. If there's one thing that differentiates this place from any other imaginable, it would be the glory of God. And so John overlooks the city, and the first characteristic that captivates him is the glory of God. You know, I've always thought that one of the most beautiful places to fly in, fly into, see from an airplane, is San Francisco. On a clear day, as you uh, fly into SFO, the sun glistens off the water of the bay, and you see the Golden Gate Bridge in the background and the Transamerica Pyramid dominating the skyline. And uh, it's really just a beautiful place. You see all the buildings there and everything from the air. It's a great place from the air until you get on the ground and you start to walk around through the airport. And for sure, that's not a place where you're going to see the glory of God in this mass of weird people that greet you upon your arrival. 
And I've seen some very strange things in the airport in San Francisco that have made me think that maybe I landed on a different planet or something. But I'm sure that John had seen magnificent cities before. Ephesians, with its temple of Diana, was a magnificent place, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was Rome with its Colosseum, uh, Greece or Athens with its Acropolis, and those areas, those places were just marvels of man's achievement. I was thinking about this the other day, that New York City, here in America, of course, has been an, uh, a engineering masterpiece to look at the skyscrapers there. And I was just thinking about what New York looked like before the invention of the automobile. There were thousands of horses in New York that just went through the city streets, uh, pulling carriages and wagons and transporting goods from one place to another. And those horses have to be fed. And whatever goes into a horse comes out of a horse. And so you can find these pictures of these mountains of manure that they're stacked up on the sides of the streets in New York City. So when you look down from above upon the cities of the earth, there's a lot of things that you'll find there or in our cities here. You see the filth of it. You see jumbled up buildings. You see irregular shapes in the skyline. You fly over L.A. and on some days you'd be lucky to see the city at all for the smog. But heaven is a vastly different place. Everything is in its place. Everything is clean and bright. Everything is polished and sparkling because this is a city that has the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? You know, that's a very good question. What, what does the Bible mean when it talks about the glory of God? Well, we can say this about it, that the glory of God equals light. There's only one way that the glory of God is spoken of in Scripture in a visible way. His glory is light. God's glory is actually everything that God is. It's the attributes of God, everything that God is. And so when you take those invisible attributes of God, when they're seen, they're always manifested in light. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says that God dwells in the light. It's a light that no man can approach unto. No person has ever seen it. When the tabernacle was built in the wilderness, the Bible says that God's glory came and filled that place so that the priests were unable to minister there. God displayed himself in a brilliant light in the Holy of Holies that was called the Shekinah glory. And that was a light that dwelt above the cherubim on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, and no one was able to approach that light. God's glory was revealed in light to the Apostle Paul Uh, When he was on his road to Damascus, the glory of God shone down in a brilliant light, a glorious light, and Paul was blinded by that light. God's glory was revealed in light when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. There, Peter, James, and John were able to see the shining presence of Jesus, just a very small uh, glimpse of God's glory, but they weren't allowed to see the fullness of it. J.A. Seiss writes that it's only when sin and sinners are gone that the brightness of God's glory is softened so that it can be seen like a precious gem called jasper. Now, when Jesus comes back to the earth, do you know how the Bible says that he will appear? In Matthew chapter 24, verse number 27, it says, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. 
Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So what is that glory? Well, John tells us in 1 John, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And then we see another description of this light in verse number 23 of our text. It says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now that tells us that we have no need for another light. There is no need for a supplemental light because there's nothing brighter than the glory of God. And so John sees this brilliant light of God's glory shining from the center of this beautiful city, and he tells us that it is God himself that is the light of the city. And there's a great passage in Isaiah that describes this. Isaiah 60 verse 19 says, The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Now, there is some disagreement among commentators concerning the sun, moon, and the stars. Some say that when we get to this particular place that we're talking about here, that the sun, moon, and stars no longer exist. And then there are some who say that they'll be here and they will serve the same function, that is, to give light upon the earth. But it appears to me that the Bible is teaching us that the light of God's glory in heaven is bright enough to eclipse the light of the sun, that the light that shines in the city is for that city and also for the new creation or the new earth that God makes. And so if there is a sun, moon, and stars, and there very well could be, I'm not saying that there isn't, but they are superfluous for the purpose of giving more light. Because when everything is filled with the brightness of God's glory, the brightest light possible, then how would you ever notice a lesser light? And certainly it is important for us to recognize here that this the city itself uh, that it's the city that gives the light. I mean, not, not like the sun is combustible and therefore it gives light, but the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is the one from whom the light emanates. Now, thirdly, the city is described as being clear as crystal, and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So the city is clear as crystal, which John means that the entire city... The entire scope of the city is like a brilliant crystal stone. Now, this is not jasper like we know today. Jasper that we have is an opaque stone. And this is a clear stone, like a perfect diamond. Now, the word here in the original language is iasper, which uh, that's the Greek word. It's actually been transliterated into the English language and called jasper. But what most people believe is that John is actually referring to a diamond. If Jason Gertz were still here, he could explain to you more than I can about diamonds, but at least we all know this, that the clearer that a diamond is, the more valuable that it is. Now, I read this description of clarity in diamonds. It says, this is what I read, clarity is the measure of how clearly a diamond is able to allow light to pass through it, reflect off of it, and refract within it. This light quality is determined by a number of factors, one of which is the level of flaws, both internal and external. The internal flaws are referred to as inclusions, and the external flaws are known as blemishes, 
with inclusions being often or more often being the more detrimental of the flaws. All diamonds contain features or flaws such as mineral inclusions and fractures, and most flaws can be so slight as to have no effect on the diamond's ability to transmit and scatter light. However, larger flaws and large groupings of flaws can diminish the ability of light to pass through the diamond unimpeded. The location and coloration of the flaw has tremendous impact on the diamond's overall clarity. If a flaw is located near the center of the diamond and is dark in color, it will often be more detrimental to the diamond's clarity than a clear flaw closer to the diamond's edge. Now, that is a description of clarity. Let me repeat this sentence. Clarity is the measure of how clearly a diamond is able to allow allow light to pass through it, reflect off of it, and refract within it. So there it's talking clarity concerns the, the types of flaws that you would find in a diamond. Well, in this city that's like a great diamond, it's a perfect city that has no flaws. The lamb is the light of the city, and in him there are no spots or blemishes. He's the center of the city, and the light passes impeded through the city with perfect clarity. So it's John's intention to say that the city is a perfect gem with light that comes from the inside, not passing through it from the outside. Now, folks, the the new Jerusalem must absolutely be a stunning place. I can't afford a poor, cheaply cut diamond, much less a very small, perfect one. But the Bible tells me and you that if you are one of God's children, that you are an heir to this one huge diamond city that's of incalculable value. Now, we go on to verse number 12 and, and following here, and we find out some of the features of the city. So next we're going to look at, thirdly tonight, the architecture of the city. The new Jerusalem descends out of heaven, and verse number 12 says, and had a wall great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Now this evening we're just going to get started with the architectural design. Now I'd like us to go down to verses 15 and 16 first so that we get an idea of the enormity of this place. This is a construction project. When God made this city, it is of huge proportions, and there is a special architectural design for this city. What is that? Well, the city is shaped like a giant cube. Verse 16 says, Then the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So the angel measured the city for John, and it turns out to be an approximate 1,500-mile cube, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. So the angel used a reed, which would have been about 10 feet long. That's what he used to measure it with. And the measurements come out to be 12,000 furlongs. And that translates into a little bit less than 1,500 miles on each side. Now, I'm going to come back to that information a little bit later when we consider how much room that there is in the city. 
But for now, if you could just picture this, we're talking about an area that this city covers that would stretch all the way from Maine down to Florida and then all the way across two-thirds of the United States to Colorado. The city is 300 times higher than, that is, the, the height of the entire city is 300 times greater than Mount Everest. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, then 1,800 miles higher than Mount St. Helena. So the city's a cube. Uh, that seems to be the best way to figure the shape of it. But there are some people who say, well, no, what the Bible is talking about here is a pyramid. A pyramid with a 1,500-mile square base that reaches 1,500 miles up to the apex. And that's an interesting theory, and there are lots of Bible expositors that hold that view. But it appears that the pyramid is more characteristic of heathen religions than it is of God. Now, the first pyramid that was ever built was when idolatry began, and that was at the Tower of Babel. The ancient Egyptians built pyramids for the worship of their sun god, Ra, and they built pyramids for the tombs. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I visited the Mayan ruins of Chichen Itza on the Yucatan Peninsula, and the Mayans also built pyramids, and they built them for the worship of the sun god, their sun god. And in Chichen Itza, there's a huge pyramid that's right in the center where human sacrifices were made to their gods. So the pyramid is a shape that's never associated with the one true living God. And so it's very unlikely that God would make the holy city in the shape of the pyramid. But there is a particular shape that God seems to favor, and that's the cube. In the temple and in the tabernacle, the holy of holies was a cube. In the tabernacle, that was an area that was measured 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And then when the temple was constructed, that area was doubled to 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. And so it seems much more appropriate and providential that God would make a city that's a perfect cube, 1,500 miles on each side, and for that city, the entire city, to be God's holy of holies. Bible says there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. And so to think of the whole city being the holy of holies seems to be very appropriate. And then the entire city sparkles like a diamond with the glory of God that comes out of the center. And there's just no way that we can imagine how beautiful it will be. Now, some people read these descriptions that the Apostle John has given, and they take off and try to give various explanations what John must have meant, and they try to switch things around because it's really too incredible for them to believe. But I, I would just wonder, how does anybody know? How could you say anything more than what John says? Who knows any more than what John knew? And when he says that this city is 12,000 furlongs or 1,500 miles on each side, then I believe that it's 1,500 miles. When he says that it sparkles like a huge diamond, then I believe he's right. It sparkles like a huge diamond. If he says that there are gates of pearl and foundations of precious stones and a sparkling wall, then who am I to dispute what John says? Who can say anything different than him? So I don't think it's possible for us to help John out here. Let's just read it. Let's believe it, just like the Bible says. Now, let's go back to verse number 12. First, he says the city had a wall great and high. Now, God's architectural design includes a wall. And it's not a little garden wall like you put around in your backyard. The city is surrounded by a diamond wall. 
verses 17 and 18. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Now, since that wall goes entirely around the city, it means that it would have a length of 6,000 miles. Verse 17 says, The angel measured it, and the measurements of it were 144 cubits. Now, for the cubit deficient among us, that would be 216 feet. Now, the question is, though, how do you proportion that 216 feet? Some people say, well, it means that this is a wall that's 216 feet tall. Well, let's think about that for just a moment. If the city is 1,500 miles high and you put a 216-foot wall around it, that'd be a little bit out of proportion. That would make the wall 37,000 times smaller than the city. And uh, that's out of proportion in these kind of magnitudes. It'd be like putting less than a half-inch curb around the Empire State Building. And if you built something like that around your house your neighbor's pit bull bull would walk over it without even seeing it. So this is not talking about the height of the wall, but rather it's referring to the width of the wall. This refers to the width. So John can't be referring to the height of the city walls because if we think about the ancient cities that he was familiar with, that the walls were usually built to the height of the city, maybe a little more and maybe a little bit less. So the height of it approximates 1,500 miles The measurements in verse 17 are not the height, but the width. And so we have a wall that's 216 feet thick, which really makes more sense. And then on these ancient city walls, there was room enough to walk around the top of them. And there was, uh, in this particular one, there's plenty of room to stroll around the top of this wall that goes around heaven. But what you might not want to do is look down because it's 1,500 miles to the bottom. So if you're scared of heights, that might be a problem for you. Now, notice that he says that this wall is also built of jasper. And so now we're back to the diamond again. This is a massive wall made of diamonds. Now, folks, we're talking about the outside of this city. If God spares no expense for the outside of it, building a wall, then what do you think he has on the inside? Now, if you come to my house and you look at my fence... You probably think, well, there must be a bum living in that house. Uh, My wife fusses at me, fix the fence, paint the fence, do this and that. And I say, why? It's just a dumb old fence. I'll get out there and I'll do it when I can. But not with God, not with him. Everything is always first class all the way. Now, in our case, the, the builder who built our house put a cheap fence around it. So the wood's just above, a grade above cardboard. But when God makes a fence... He puts a wall around his place, and nothing but perfect diamonds will do. You know, that's almost a scary thought, isn't it? Uh, It's scary in this way, that we are so faithless as Christians. I mean, we think about this. We fuss over giving up a dollar for God because we're afraid that if we do, we'll miss the payment on our 56-inch TV at the end of the month. And so we won't give to God. Now, God is just getting started here with this description of heaven, the opulence of heaven by saying that there's a wall of diamonds that surrounds it. He's prepared all of that for you. He's given that all to you. And there are Christian people that cheat God out of the tithe. You know, praise God that he is a gracious God because what we really deserve is a cardboard fence like I've got around my house. Now, one other note that I want to make before we go on and and we'll talk about 
some other things next week in the next part of the architectural design. Maybe I should have put this first, but we're going to put it here right at the end of the message. Thirdly tonight is the symmetry of the dimensions. You ever notice that God has perfect symmetry? Now, many times what an architect will do is that he will balance out the features of a building. Now, where I'm from in Kentucky, uh, there are a lot of Georgian colonial-style houses. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Georgian colonial, but uh, that type of, of, of a house makes the most out of the space, and that's because it's built like a box. And you cut a Georgian colonial right down the middle, the left half is exactly like the right half. Well, God is a very efficient builder. And that's what a Georgian colonial does. It makes the most out of the space that you have by using that box shape. So God is like that. He's an efficient builder. He likes symmetry, and he likes specific numbers. You notice here there are 12 gates, there are 12 angels, there are 12 foundations, and that supports a city of 12,000 furlongs on each side. But I wanted to to bring this in here because we, we had just talked about the width of the walls. The number there is 144 cubits. You think that's a number that gets into the Scripture by accident? Not at all, because 12 times 12 is 144. In the seventh chapter, there are 144,000 Israelites that witness for God. That's 12,000 out of the 12 tribes, each of the 12 tribes of Israel. In the fourth chapter, it talks about 24 elders that are in the throne room of God. And most likely, that refers to 12 that represent the 12 apostles and 12 that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So I have a guess about things here. And that is, if God has a swimming pool, that it's 12 miles long, and 12 miles wide, and 12 miles deep. You know, if people talk about, I wonder if we could play baseball in heaven. Well, if we do, there's 12 bases in baseball in heaven. And, uh, you know, football already has 12 players on each side, which is bound to mean that football is God's sport. I don't know. And, uh, and Green Bay must be God's team. We saw that tonight. Well, we're getting a little bit sacrilegious here and foolish, but... Uh, I'm thankful that God has all this figured out, aren't you? I mean, I'm really thankful that God has a perfect plan that is perfectly fulfilled. There's no guesswork in what God does. He knows what he did. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he will do. And I just thank the Lord for this, that I am also, as a child of God, and so are you, in God's perfect plan. Everything that God has is perfectly arranged, perfectly figured out. And folks, if you're a child of God tonight, you are in God's perfect plan, and you'll get to see the city of the new Jerusalem. Next week, we'll talk about some more. We've got three or four more messages to talk about all these different features that are in the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to look into your word tonight. And what a magnificent place that you have prepared for us. Uh, We know that words can't describe it. Uh, There's no way that I could spend enough time tonight to try to make it as beautiful as it is. We just read what you say in your word. There's not much else explanation that can be given to it. You are a great God, and we just are so thankful, Lord, that we belong to you. So bless your people tonight. Help us to think about heaven all of the time that wonderful place where you're going to take us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.